This is John. I got your visual. Come in, Mike. I'm standing by for you. Roger. I'll be there in a couple of months. In the meantime, get him out. listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast with myself, Hank, from Fire Force Ventures, and Bindu from Men Among Men Stories. Hey. Hey to yourself. The scaling ladders carried by the sappers, 20 in number under Lieutenant Jones, were converted into a battering ram, and after some little trouble, we succeeded in battering down the gate. The mutineers rushed on, sword in hand, after firing their muskets. Most of them appeared to be sappers who were hard at work at the batteries. Thirty-one were killed in one place, nineteen in another, and at the very least three hundred wounded. I destroyed their batteries and magazine, and after burning all the huts in the place, I withdrew and reached Hindu Rao's house after dusk. Total killed this day seven, and eight wounded in Surmores. The regimental color was cut clean in two by the round shot which did so much havoc. The sixtieth rifles in the attack on Kisenguden behaved admirably. The four companies were commanded by Captain J.R. Wilton, a fine, gallant officer who led his men in a manner which ensured confidence. So that is a extract from a book which is actually called Extracts from Letters and Notes written during the Siege of Delhi in 1857 by General Sir Charles Reed. Um, it covers a pretty significant moment in British military history, that being the Siege of Delhi during the Indian Mutiny. Um, specifically, it focuses on... It's, it's written basically as a kind of combat journal, combat diary, right? So it, this this extracts and letters and notes written during the Siege of Delhi in 1857, quite the mouthful of a title. Mm-hmm. That's because it's not really... It wasn't really intended to be a book. It's it's literally a collection of this guy, General Sir Charles Reed's letters, and mm-hmm. just like notes that he was writing, oftentimes under fire, or shortly after a significant engagement uh, during this battle in 1857. It um, it's a pretty big topic, and it's it's again we're we've been recently in in our last few podcasts been going kind of out there as, yeah. as far as some of the topics we've covered uh, the the last podcast you'll have probably listened to still dealt with Africa however uh, we have looked at like Gots yeah. the Mid- Renaissance Europe and, and yeah yeah so this is our first uh, uh, I guess um, deep dive into Indian military history and British uh, India in particular which is a pretty big topic and it's it's something that uh, we've actually been slowly accumulating more and more sources on that are kind of hard to find actually um, there's there's obviously kind of a uh, given that the Indian like Republic the modern Republic of India and Pakistan separated from the British crown in 1947 there's kind of been the the what is it, like 70, 80 years of disconnect now between yeah. uh, that history and the modern British army and the modern Indian armies, the modern Pakistani armies. But there's still a lot of, uh, I guess, crossover and um, a lot of connections still in lineages lineages uh, that, that date right back to the Indian mutiny. 
So it's very interesting history and um, something that hopefully we can cover a little more of in the future because, we, again, we've been slowly accumulating rarer and rarer sources. Uh, and it, I guess it's it, there's a certain memory of, of this speci specific conflict in India. Um, there's a certain memory of it in the UK, a certain modern memory uh, that's been really contorted by many years of... I guess post-colonial world history, like post-colonial history, I guess. Uh -huh. um, and uh, it's it's really like muddied and obscured the complexities and kind of the gray gray areas. So today we're going to talk a lot about this Indian mutiny, what caused it, what some of the fighting and was like in the 1850s in British India. We're going to talk about the Gurkhas, who are very important. Um, to this story, and I think that's honestly where we should begin, because this regiment, the deeds of it, which are talked about in this book, is the Sirmore Battalion, which is a Gurkha regiment. Battalion. But Battalion. Yeah. Sorry, yeah. Unit. Yes, Gurkha. unit, yeah. Yeah, we'll, we'll talk about the causes of the mutiny, we'll talk about the Gurkhas themselves, and, and obviously we're, we are going to get into this book, the first excerpt that you read there describes a combat engagement um, and it was a very confusing siege as far as military sieges go uh, this wasn't quite like Stalingrad or Harlech Castle this was uh, this was weird it was more like Elysia where you had where you had elements of so you know we'll, we'll get into the causes in a, in a moment here but basically you have British troops and loyal Indian troops in the service of the British East India Company fighting guys within the city of Delhi. Uh, and also you had mutineers and Marathas and Mughals and everybody kind of from outside all going towards Delhi because it has pretty big significance to Indians um, with the presence of the Red Fort and the former Mughal emperors. It's a seat of power. So it's a, it's a seat of power, and it's a, it has huge symbolic meaning to Indians. So mm -hmm. all the mutineers are kind of attacking from outside and trying to storm into the city. At the same time, um, you also have elements in the urban maze that is Delhi uh, fighting the British at, at in different points yeah. of the city. So it's it's. So the British are trying to both capture the city and also fight off yeah. people attacking the city so they're in both an offensive and defensive role yeah when when you kind of read into it it's like yeah, the siege of Delhi at different times and we'll get into it in the book like at, at different points like they're besieging the mutineers and like the rebels and at other points the British are the ones being um, besieged so we'll get into that uh, Indian mutiny though like I guess we'll I guess we'll start there um so, so there's there's a lot of reasons behind why the Indian Mutiny 1857 does happen. Now, if you go back to uh, one of our previous episodes, which talked about the Anglo-Afghan War, uh, we can kind of see some of the early, I guess, signs of the 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 myth of invincibility with the British Army kind of starting to disintegrate, yeah. right? The, yeah, this, the, yeah. Yeah, because as we mentioned, basically from the Napoleonic Wars, which were, of course, a huge British success, up to the First Anglo-Afghan War, the British don't really lose a war 
anywhere. There's like one draw in West Africa, and yes. it was a very small, like inconclusive campaign that was not really that important. So the and then in the Anglo-Afghan War, as we discussed in podcast uh, number thirteen, that myth is of invincibility is shattered. Like they they take a massive hit, and it's in a co- country that geographically is very close to India. And a lot of Indians who are maybe not too thrilled with having to uh, live under the East India Company are noticing, hey, we can, like, these guys are beatable. They are not, they don't win every war. Right. And with exception to the Anglo-Nepalese wars and the Anglo-Sikh wars at kind of in, like, the in-between period, right, there are conflicts still in India. Um, The last really major battle involving, you know, thousands of line regiments was the Battle of Asai, which happens during the Napoleonic Wars, and the Duke of Wellington famously kind of earns his chops there. Mm-hmm. This, is that the expression, earns chops? I'm probably the, screwing up. The, the, I think you're combining a I think couple combining different, a few. but his, whatever, yeah. Earned his stripes. Yeah, um, earned his stripes, yeah, that one's Showed his chops, whatever. Anyways, <laughs> he, he defeats a... Um, joint French-Indian force in dramatic fashion. Yep. Uh, you know, the whole war elephants thing. and yeah. Hugely outnumbered, too. Hugely he, outnumbered. Yeah. Very famous battle, um, which we know we won't get into too much into because it's like 100 years before this this mutiny. But uh, it, it is, or I guess, 150 years. It's, it's a long time ago. 150 years. 18, 18. Okay, sorry, I guess 50 years. Yeah, 50, yeah. You're right, right, way right, off. Oh, I was way off. <laughs> yeah. So 50 years Kind of before this this mutiny, there's there's a significant battle on the Indian subcontinent involving the British and, and the mm-hmm. French and um, various Indian principalities. Mm-hmm. The British are victorious, and from there, it's just this constant yeah. chain of little little minor victories in comparison. But yes, that's that's like they, they in many ways um, the British, at least the perception is they've rested on their laurels. And uh, after the disaster that was the first Anglo-Afghan War and and the retreat to Jalalabad and uh, the whole the whole situation with the forty was the forty fourth, right? Yeah, forty fourth regiment of foot getting chopped up at Gandamark. Uh, the British are not the same British. Yeah, that Wellington led. Yeah. Also in Europe, this is just four years after the Crimean War, which was a victory, but it was one that a lot of British. Like, it was a lot of British troops died needlessly, and they didn't really enhance their military and even reputation. With, yeah, even within the British populace on, on, like, mainland United Kingdom, the perception was that the whole campaign had been poorly led. Yeah. Um, most of the troops that died in Crimea were not killed in combat, but died of disease and starvation. The overall commander yeah. died of disease. Yeah, he died of dysentery. Yes. Right? So yeah. it, it was not. Um, it was not a very well run campaign. Uh, there, there was, you know, just I guess you could say like certain issues that plagued Victorian high society as far as egos and politic, politic, politicking goes. Yep. Uh, that played a big role in the failures of the British Army in Crimea. So the Indian population definitely is is getting rumblings of this, right? Because mm-hmm. again, even white Britons in the United Kingdom are starting to 
be very critical of the military leadership at the time. And uh, the, even within the, the regular British army, the perception basically after Versailles of the East India Company officers uh, is they are kind of dawdling, sit around, lounging in the yeah. sun kind of guys, right? They're not, mm-hmm. they're not prepared for expeditionary warfare yeah. in the way that the British had for mm-hmm. decades. They're, they're not prepared to uh, actually engage in combat or they, they lead lesser men in yeah. smaller skirmishes. So yeah, the image of the East India Company. Well, we should talk. Yeah, by the way, yes. just point of reference, like the United Kingdom and all the other colonies that the uh, well, not maybe not all the colonies, but most of the colonies were administered kind of to some degree with more control uh, from the British Crown directly. Whereas the East India Company, despite flying the like a Union Jack, um, was their own thing. It was it was a private privately owned yeah. corporation that basically owned India yes. on behalf of the British crown. Yeah, but, and like many of these sort of corporations, I guess, the, the Dutch had their own as well. Yes, which also, and, and the French. And the French, yeah. Um, if you've probably seen the, the Pirates of the Caribbean movies, the East India Company is sort of portrayed as this leviathan with its own fleet and thousands of uh, British troops at its command, and it was kind of that formidable beast during the time of Clive, but I think we would both agree, by the 1850s it's kind of become pretty bloated, weak, bureaucratic. It's yeah. its glory days are behind it. It is no longer this sort of private lev- like private uh, sector leviathan that it once was. In fact, I think you could even say that it was kind of propping the British crown up when they took India. Now the British crown is propping up the company. Would you? Would you? Know, say, I don't, I don't would you go that like, far? I, I wouldn't go that far. Um, it's just like a company decline, you know. Like, yeah. Like Gillette or whatever. I don't know. Yeah. Or Kellogg's or whatever. You know, because Kellogg's is like disintegrating right now. I did not. As know that, at the time of recording this, we're recording this on the twenty sixth of June, it's it's actually disintegrating. So. Corporations, in the same way, it like corporations, just like empires, um, tend to always disintegrate or break up or get bought out. Uh, and th- this was like this was like the end. The, like they were clearly like in their end stages in in mm-hmm. many ways. Yeah. Um, they were resting on their laurels, and mm-hmm. it just so happened this corporation had yeah. the control of an entire subcontinent and, and an army and a navy. Yes, that's the only difference, right? Mm-hmm. So no, no biggie. Yeah. Uh, but you know, corporations have their own like life expectancies. They, they kind of always had, and uh, it, it was. It looked like this corporation was due for a hostile takeover, as they say in the industry. Mm-hmm. So, it happened. A guy by the name of Mangal Pandey, who was a sepoy, sepoy meaning basically private soldier. Uh, I think it's it's a it's a Hindi term. Um, I probably I don't speak Hindi, so I probably have that wrong. But Sepoy is basically rank junior soldier. Um, he decides, like I, <laughs> well, there's some evidence he was actually like smoking weed when this <laughs> happened. So we can we can blame the whole thing on weed. You know, hundreds of thousands of people dying from weed. But anyways, he uh, was probably smoking the devil's lettuce because in the Indian subcontinent there is like kind of a heritage of cannabis oil and. 
marijuana and stuff. Um, and one day, he just a sergeant was trying to tell him what to do, an Indian sergeant. And he was just like, no. Uh, and then from there, there was like a whole. It's it's pretty well recorded. I won't get into all the specifics because it's it's almost as well recorded as like the forty seven Ronin thing in um, in Japan. Yep. Right. Where it's like this this kind of domino effect happens, where one thing leads to another, and eventually uh, there's there's like an assault on like a white officer. There is an Indian sergeant that intervenes and saves the white officer. That Indian sergeant is murdered by people that don't like the facts that he was, and then that he protected the white officer, and then it just it gets crazy and. Uh, Pandey still recognized as a kind of like a national hero of India. Um, he doesn't have kind of the mixed reputation of other failed revolutionaries like Louis Riel in Canada or um, let's say like John Brown in the United States, right? Because he was basically, he leads a pretty disastrously bad uh, revolt and he's eventually he's at the end of it, he's executed and stuff. He doesn't make it to the end, obviously. Uh-huh. And obviously the British win this conflict yeah however bloody it was they do win this conflict um but he is remembered as like a national hero despite mm-hmm. just kind of being a pothead he's yeah. like no man anyways that's a very quick we will yeah. we've got to get into it one day yeah. the whole sequence of events ba- basically he but, started a popular revolt that a bunch of princes and stuff threw their support behind right Yes, and uh, an entire sentence. So saying it, entire regiments um, deserted, right? And it was just because of that idea: uh, the British are no longer invincible. If this like pot smoking, relatively junior soldier can (laughs) cause this much chaos, um, why are we listening to them in the first place? And and at this point, the the Mughal Empire, uh, the Mughal Emperor, uh, was still alive. So. Mm -hmm. The British had uh, at least the East India Company. So I say British and East India Company interchangeably. Sorry for any confusion there. But the, I guess the British authorities, which would have been the EIC, um, mm-hmm. they they still like recognized him as the emperor, right? But because of just slowly hit the Mughal Empire had been whittled down to yeah. next to nothing. The, it, it was already kind of an empire in decline when the British started yes. really moving. So in they India. they basically had the guy under virtual house arrest in mm-hmm. in Delhi. Like they they yeah. they never like killed him or anything um, because the, this like it's not really how the British r- rule. I guess they no, want they... to have some sort of local legitimacy. Yeah. And uh, he was seen in, in some ways as that. And, and the British, like the East India Company, definitely used a lot of local rulers, a lot of local princes, um, were like, you guys continue to rule in the way that you always had, but just with the extra British laws and fly a Union Jack. Mm-hmm. That was basically the terms. The Mughal Emperor was a symbolic figurehead, but because of the fact he had the title Emperor, uh, you they they couldn't really give him any actual power and yeah. um, by by the time of the Indian Mutiny eighteen fifty seven he's a very old man and um, in virtual house arrest so he was still alive that's yep. the thing that's that's the that's the key thing here is he was still alive and for that reason as this kind of popular revolt um, starts to kick off and and as well there's there's also we'll we'll we ought to address this too the yeah. whole uh, the, the whole bullets, bullets situation the whole bullets thing which is like 
art, it's still really contested now. Yeah, this is one of those things that a lot of people say, well, this is the reason why the mutiny happened, yeah. like the, the spark that lit the fire, and that is kind of, the spark that lit the tinder, and that is kind of debatable. But it certainly yes. is something that we need to address, because yeah, so, it, it certainly plays So a there role. was a rumor going around that the British, um, the new Enfield uh, percussion cap muskets between the 51s and the 53s which were the newer newest pattern of service rifle replacing the old brown besses mm-hmm. had cartridges that uh, paper cartridges that, that carried the ball that were soaked in animal grease yeah, of both, some sort both pig and yes, cow but bovine and ungulate or whatever bovine and uh, it What's starts to it's serum ungulates are bovine Huh? Unglutz is any hoofed mammal. It's okay. uh, see, it's some something serin, something yeah, like yeah, that. Yeah. yeah. So some sort of pig or cow grease. Yes. Okay. Yeah. And uh, we're not biologists, unfortunately. No, we are not. Yeah. So the the rumor went around that the British had soaked them to waterproof them. Now there was, and there's a lot of debate, and we read a little bit about this from because um, it's mentioned in the Osprey books, and it's mentioned in. Uh, one of the other sources we looked into researching this stuff, mm-hmm. uh, the I think Colonel Edward Shakespeare, I want to say, who talks about the history of the Sermore Regiment, which we'll, we will get to eventually here. Uh, but basically, it, it it's not 100% true that they were soaking them in animal greases because generally um, certain vegetable oils and stuff tended to give these cartridges better waterproofing. Um, and you know, like they, they were inside like a leather pouch, which which was pretty water resistant. So, but that you know, rumor mill soldiers will be soldiers, right? Regardless of what era. And there was rumor mill that the, the British were putting um, cow and pig grease, mm-hmm. obviously for a Hindu soldier who were in the Hindu religion cows are sacred you don't eat them right and in the uh and in the muslim faith like you don't eat pigs yeah they're unclean yeah that it's a it like completely like no no go yeah so and like pretty much probably 80 to 90 percent of indian soldiers are either hindu or muslim yes uh they they are not um actually it's probably even higher in that time period it's probably like well, there, there are Sikhs and stuff. There are Sikhs, but beyond that, there is, like, probably the vast majority of the Indian army at this time is either Hindu or Muslim. Yeah. Yes. So they, it doesn't sit well with them. Yeah, um, not at all. Now, the, the issue is, because you have to bite, we should, we should actually break this down a little more, you have to bite the paper cartridge yeah, in so, order to pour the powder into your the top of your musket and, yeah. and then put the ball in. So just that act of biting it, you are ingesting, yes. right? technically speaking. Yeah. Uh, you're not. So it's not just you're touching these, like with a modern breech-loaded rifle. Yeah. You literally, um, you have, literally to have to. Literally have to bite it, and then and pour. Yes, I just made a biting and yeah. pouring motion for. <laughs> but anyways, that being said, uh, you you do need to bite these things. Yeah. So you do need to ingest this this animal grease, and uh, so. Slowly, like there, there are manuals like of arms that were coming out at this time that are written, and we have like textual evidence of this. Um, the British authorities were aware that there was this rumor mill going around, 
And technically speaking, you don't need to bite the cartridge. You can just rip it with your hands, right? Wasn't as efficient for reasons of ergonomics and the way that you load your musket where the, the bore of the, the musket or the rifle is basically up to your nose or your mouth more or less. So it makes sense to just bite and pour. Um, but like in that time frame, a lot of the manual of arms kind of actually change, as, especially for the Indian Army, where the orders specifically were you were to only rip the cartridge, right? Mm-hmm. Now, they they tried their best to dispel the rumors, like there's no animal grease. That doesn't make sense. It's not as effective. There was some evidence that was used at different times and different batches of ammunition. Um, a lot of ammo was really kind of developed by cottage industries and stuff. So yeah. maybe some little factory somewhere or yeah. some house making ammo or some uh, arsenal, you know, loading. Because you had to load these paper cartridges. You had to make the lead balls and put them in paper cartridges and stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of different, like, steps to it. And they would have been circulating around. So one guy would have been making, like, lead balls. One guy would have been wrapping the paper cartridges. Maybe one of those guys just like, oh, I'll just dip it in animal grease. Not, not thinking uh-huh. anything of it, right? Uh, so... Because their rumor mill, the army wanted to dispel it, the East Indian Company Army, a lot of their manual arms say actually rip the cartridge before you pour it in. That being said, there were a lot of other factors, and that's why we talked about the other factors first. Yeah. Um, that were also like yeah. things that these guys were considering at the time, and it just it was just this perfect storm. Yeah, and obviously lots of Indian Hindus and Muslims are not particularly happy just on a basis of being ruled by these foreign white Christians who yes. they have very little in common with. Yeah. Well, there This is long they, before the idea of multicultural yeah. democracy. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So yes. it was they were for both sides. They were being yeah. ruled by basically Indian puppet for, leaders. Foreign infidels ruling through puppet leaders. Yes. yes. Which is, you know, people get annoyed eventually, yes. right? Yeah. When when you have that situation happening. Mm-hmm. Uh so Revolt kicks off, and um, <laughs> this is where the story starts to get really weird. So we're in we're in the we've been focusing on the Indian subcontinent right now. Um, uh-huh. We're gonna go all the way back to the streets of London. Yeah, about a, a few years before all this craziness happened. And by the way, people start getting like slaughtered everywhere. Europeans start. Yeah, there was a very nasty sort of almost racial war yeah, yeah. context this a lot of british okay. civilians were killed so, so we'll, okay, we'll, we'll get into later. it we'll get into it yes, but yeah. we're gonna go to the streets of london there's a um there's basically a hooker named laura bell in london yes <laughs> yeah uh she is uh she's she was described she was a painting of her she's described as a redhead yes a really really attractive woman even like for the time yeah she apparently had like a very buxom figure and was stunningly beautiful her clientele were all rich businessmen and land and yeah. nobles and the upper class yeah of if you were some victorian era schmuck who yeah. you know you're like a like a street sweep like you were you could not afford her she yeah was so... she was called the queen of london whoredom yes yes she, she was uh she was the real queen of the uk you real like you know like yeah. queen of the uh british empire anyways um She's a very attractive woman, and this guy, uh, basically a warlord from Nepal, which at the time was a British ally. Like the British had had a war with Nepal earlier in the nineteenth century, 
uh, the British realized like <laughs> we're gonna have a very hard time conquering these people. Yeah. Um, what what your the Anglo Nepalese War was between eighteen fourteen and eighteen sixteen, right, and so it's also sometimes called the Gorkha War. Yeah. yeah. And uh, the British realized like yeah, there's no point trying to conquer these people, so they had yeah basically been like yeah, we're just we're just going to sign a amicable peace treaty where mm-hmm. we're both yeah. see each other on even terms. Yes. Um, the Nepalese at this time are pretty darn warlike, and they have a warlord leader who's not he's not the, the, the king or the prince or He's anything. the prime minister. He is actually, officially he's the prime minister, but for all intents yes. and purposes, the guy's a warlord. His name is Young Bahadur Rana. Yes. He arrives in London in, I think it was the 1840s, I want to say. It, it was around wrong. 18, it was between 1849 and like 1855. Okay, so somewhere in that so, time somewhere period. in that time frame he arrives in in London and, and he buys a nice house. Yeah, and he, yeah. he hangs out in London for a while um for reasons of well he is officially a prime minister so he's he's yeah. I guess he's trying to learn uh as a yeah. foreigner like how did the Eng- how does the English parliamentary system work? How can I incorporate yeah. this be more efficient as a warlord mm-hmm. <laughs> ruler of my own people? Like how how did the British yeah. do it? Cuz they're obviously quite successful, right? Mhm. Um, we can we can bemoan their military prowess perhaps at this point, and definitely like the East India Company was was not super impressive, mm-hmm. uh, but economically there was, there was no question like the English are in many ways top dogs as a maritime power, yeah. as a, as a trade power, as an industrial mm-hmm. producer of yeah. everything. In the London's world. probably the fastest growing city in the world at this time. Exactly. So he's he's there to learn and. Um, well, he's he's single. Yeah, <laughs> he's a he's a he's a single Nepalese warlord with a lot of money yeah. and a lot of time in London, and he, he runs into this Laura Bell. Yeah, uh, and the the rumor was he had it was it was carriages worth of gold. Yes, um, the 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 exact figure for one it, night this allegedly, alleged alleged, figure, alleged the alleged yeah. figure is about two hundred and fifty thousand pounds. Yes. Yeah, in that time's money, in that period's money, yes. that's like yeah. that's like many, and that million. was just one gift. Yeah, that's like yeah. many millions of pounds today, or millions of dollars. Like, yes. it, like it was a lot of yeah. gifts and money to, to basically spend a few nights with this woman. They spent ninety days together. Ninety days. Yes. Right. So they had the a torrid. <laughs> I'm not sure you could call it love affair, but close close enough. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So yes, um, he really liked this woman, and yes. Uh, Lavished a lot of gifts on her for her services and her companionship. All th- all good things come to an end, and after this ninety day fling, he was just like, you know, I I have to, you know, we, yeah. I I can't be a warlord and like take you on as a wife or as I'd like to, but you know, obviously, yeah. he's Nepalese. She's a white woman. It's just it's it's not going to work for either culture, and yeah. in that time frame, like you know. Misogynation, miscegenation, or whatever, yeah. was was just it well, just, and just also could, just the fact is, I mean, he had his own like all these duties back at home, yeah, and yeah, it, yeah, yeah. Like, he had yeah, to go was, back home, yeah. and it just it, it was never going to work out. They both knew this, so but yeah. he he made her a promise. He was like, if you ever need anything, anything in the world, right, yes. I will provide it for you. And he gives her a ring to signify that promise. Yes, yes, not a wedding ring, just a nice gold ring. So step forward in the future, 1857, this revolt kicks off. And uh, 
Laura Bell, being a patriotic Briton, is hearing about the atrocities of, of this war of European civilians. No, normally, like the soldiers of the East India Company and their families getting slaughtered. Yeah. Oftentimes in their own homes. Yeah. Um, because this is turning into a pretty nasty race war. It's very confusing. Obviously, the British would have put out very sensationalized reports of Absolutely. maybe like babies being chucked into wells and stuff. Yes. Now there were atrocities, maybe not that bad, but like from Yeah, there was definitely women and children. Yeah, being so killed. from the yeah. perspective in London was it was, you know, the worst thing ever. Yeah. Right? It was it was insane. It was horrific and beyond imagine. So as a patriotic Briton prostitute, a British yeah. pros- patriotic British prostitute, Laura Bell sends the ring back to uh Young Bahadur Rana, with with basically a message, mobilize your troops and like save India, save British India. This is almost a you know a few years later now, and they haven't seen each other. And mm-hmm. despite the fact they would never see each other in person again for the rest of their respective lives, uh, Young Bahadur Rana immediately raises a bunch of different like he yeah. he authorizes the formation of a bunch of uh, different regiments. And as well authorizes a bunch of uh, regiments that had already existed and Nepalese guys to um, basically cross over into the territory of British India uh, and, and kick some mutineer ass. Yeah. He mobilizes like thousands of men and um, among them are the men of the Surmore Battalion. Mm-hmm. Which had already existed in the East India Company um, establishment, but like he gives like the thumbs up, like this regiment is good to go because technically all these Gurkha units still kind of belong to him in, mm-hmm. in some to some extent. Even though many of them do serve in the British Army, even the East, India, this, East, East India, India Company East Army, Company. even prior to this mutiny, right? So, yeah, it's because of a redhead, really attractive redhead that uh, yeah. these little men from Nepal, these little violent uh, kukri wielding men. Um, actually march into India and uh, uh-huh. this is where our we get into the extracts and letters and notes from General Sir Charles Reed himself who was I believe a major at this time one of these um, British officers in the East India Company employ he had uh, for he, he knew I believe he had campaigned a little bit with his unit um, a, a few of the guys in the unit were veterans of the Anglo-Sikh Wars or Anglo-Sikh Wars that had happened about a decade earlier. They weren't massive engagements, but it was still like a, you know, line infantry conflict, right? They weren't massive engagements. The British obviously came out on top. Um, But his unit, unlike a lot of other East India Company regiments, had actually seen a little bit of action and they were... They were pretty well drilled and highly motivated because the the word came down from young Bahadur Rana, like all all good all good Gurkhas, all good Nepalese soldiers, um, will get out there and go get some, kick some ass. So uh, the the Surmore Battalion marches. They're originally stationed at a place called uh, Deradun, which was a catonment, cat catonment. I don't know how to say that word, catonment. Catonment of I have uh, no the, idea. Sorry. So that's, that's that's like a it's a specific well not necessarily specific to British India but it's uh, it's a pretty it's it's still used in India today as a term for like a barracks mm-hmm. like a barracks or a fort it's catonment anyways 
at uh, Dera Dun, which is modern day uh, Uttarakhand, which is just kind of on the Nepalese border. So these guys aren't super far from home, um, and uh, they they get the word like you guys are going to march to Delhi, where there's this very complex urban siege going on, where they're being attacked and they're also attacking. Right, mm-hmm. they're attacking within the city and they're also being attacked from outside the city. So there's this very complex urban siege. You guys are needed, uh, and you guys are switched on and good to go. So Reed, um, <laughs> he he's like, all right, let's let's go to town, and it's a 370 kilometer march. It's pretty significant, and this is with in the Indian heat and full kit, all leather. The Gurkha, the Surmors wore rifle green and black, which is not good under the Indian sun. All yeah. wool uniforms, uh, carrying either Brunswick rifles or 1851s, Kukri bayonet, um, I think 35, 40 rounds of ammunition. You're carrying a lot of kit, and uh, it's 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 a it's a bit of a drag, but they're the guys are ready to go, um, and they leave from Dun to uh, Delhi, which is just it, for geographical reasons, I guess we'll. So Nepal's kind of on the eastern edge, closer towards like China, basically, um, and and yeah, just basically look towards like China. They're they're pretty close to that region, kind of in the Himalayas, like actually really like in the Himalayas, mm-hmm. right? Um, Nepal is basically all Himalayas. <laughs> You've been there, so I've been to it's, Nepal. It's it's, all, it's, it's not mountains. Yes, it's not all mountains, but it is a very mountainous country. The, what I would describe it to is it's a bit, a lot of the country is a bit like almost the Scottish Highlands. Okay. Then, the, which slowly taper up into actual big mountains. Or or like yes. the foothills that you have near the Rocky Mountains in Canada. So, that's just kind of south of that is Dun, modern day Uttarakhand, which is, mm-hmm. I guess in India, you call it Uttarakhand, the whole province. Uh, they, um, and funny enough, like, the Gurk, the the Indian Army Gurkhas, I believe, are still stationed there to this day. Because India, the, the modern Republic of India, has retained Gurkha units, and mm-hmm. I believe they are still stationed in that same spot that um, you know Charles Reed's guys were stationed in back in eighteen fifty seven. Anyways, I digress. Uh, if we go a little bit further west and south, just slightly south, still in northern India, is Delhi, this hugely symbolic city with the famous red fort of the Mughal emperors, which was like the famous Indian palace, right? Their version of Buckingham Palace, basically, and pretty pretty darn old building and very significant to all Indians, regardless of, like, race or caste or religion. Like, it was very significant to all Indians, right? Um, within the red fort, obviously, is this... I think he was in the red fort, the, uh, the Mughal emperor... Right? Yes. He's technically, still yeah. ruling his own little little house, basically. Mm-hmm. So uh, that's 370 kilometers away. It's a bit of a it's a bit of a walk, and um, they're they're kind of walking into a really not not only like rough situation because they know they're going to be dealing with a pretty. They're hearing reports of a, there's a complex urban siege going on. Um, a lot of Indian units that were under the employ of the British East India Company had deserted to this over this wider mutiny. But 
just as big of a number of guys remain loyal to the British for one reason or another, right? Gurkha regiments, uh, particularly Sikh regiments, a lot of Muslim regiments actually mm-hmm. um, remain loyal. Like, or at least the regiments weren't always based off religious or ethnic lines. They're often geographical lines. But because of the geographical lines, generally speaking, each regiment uh, was made up of similarly minded people. Mm-hmm. Right? It, it's not like today where a lot of you can kind of a lot of regiments kind of kind of recruit from everywhere um, in modern militaries or you have national recruitment. It was very locally based. So these guys yeah. that were of the same mind. So if these guys, their region or their prince or whatever um, was more pro British. They would generally stay pro-British, and I think at one point they even a the, uh, few Muslim leaders on the mutiny side tried to declare a general jihad, and that actually blew up in their face with a lot of Muslims because they're like, "No, the jihad mm-hmm. should be the under in the other direction, like a pro-British jihad." So it, <laughs> yeah. it, it was like a really weak argument, like because mm-hmm. people brought up the Islamic uh, theology, and yeah. Gurkha Reed talks about this. By the way, he Charles Reed. Well, I guess we could start calling him Gurkha Reed because that was his nickname. Yeah. At the time. Mm-hmm. Um, so, anyways, that being said, the, the we have a lot of you have a like a lot of dudes basically that yeah. kind of all look roughly the same. They're all Indian men in red coats. Half of them are friendly and like totally on your side. Literally, like pro British jihadists. Yeah. And then and then you have like other people who want to flay you alive and eat you and stuff, right? Like <laughs> you 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 have everything that you can encounter. And you have units that are like well, we're like a pioneer regiment, we're not really a combat unit, but we don't really, you know, who's who's winning here? You know, <laughs> yeah, like, exactly. So you, yeah. so they're walking in a situation. They encounter like uh, along the way um by the way, they they campaign from uh Balanchar to the Ganges Canal all the way down to Delhi, right? It's a pretty long, long haul. Um, now, if you were to just walk it yourself, it would take you about four days. But bear in mind, they're full kit. They're being like, they have to stop every now and again because they're moving as a as a battalion, yeah. which is about 300, 400 dudes. Uh, they're, sorry, exactly 490 he sets out with. So there you go. That's the, that's the number he gives. 490 Gurkhas. They're they're pushing and uh, they're they're bumping into at times very friendly Indians. They're like, oh, thank God, the Gurkhas are we're gonna be okay. And then yeah. at other times they're running into Indian regiments who immediately just start shooting at them. Yeah, right. Because <laughs> uh, and then at other times they're encountering units that they kind of have like Mexican standoffs. Yeah, with, where their their muskets are loaded and they're just like. What are we going to do here? What are we going to yeah. do? And the other guys, you know, also have their muskets loaded and then they, they kind of point their guns at each other and both slowly back off. They have a yeah. lot of incidents like this um, moving forward. And uh, throughout this campaign, they finally make it uh, to um, to Delhi and uh, take up a position at the Hindu Rouse House, which would have been on the northeast side of, uh, sorry, the northwest side of Delhi. So on the, again, we gotta, I wish we could, like, map this out better. I'll try to map it out as best I can. So when they arrive in Delhi, and the north end of the town, or the city, is the British camp, the main British camp, or the main British force. Um, that that British force is being attacked from all sides at different times by different rebelling units. Uh, 
So, so the on the mutineer side, there's kind of a mix of kind of ragtag militias and regular British trained regiments that had deserted. Right, so they had all the British equipment, chain of command, organization, uniforms, and they had just they're just shooting the British now rather than fighting with them. And then you had just people that heard the word there was some sort of grand grand adventure going on in Delhi and the emperor needs them. So they they showed up with pitchforks and spears and swords and whatever they could muster uh, mm-hmm. and old flintlocks and and uh, joined the fray. So you had uh, the British camp up north just slightly south of that and a little bit to the uh, west was a pretty palatial manor uh, owned by a guy called the Hindu Rao. Um, and he was a pretty like respected uh, nobleman who had recently moved to Delhi and because he just had a lot of money at a pretty nice big house and more because like an he, estate it, than a house right? yeah, yeah yeah more of an estate and uh he he wanted obviously to be outside of the urban maze that is delhi because delhi's like been built on top of like another ancient city and stuff it's like yeah. one of these old cities it's like mexico city it's yeah. this very big very it's, dense city or, and, or paris or yeah, exactly London. Yeah. and it's just been built on top of itself over and over and he wanted to get away from that urban sprawl, so he was on kind of the west side of the town. And he, he almost, if you look at a map of uh, what Delhi looked like in 1857, his building there is like kind of on its own. Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, this big, white, beautiful building, <laughs> isolated from the rest of the city, uh, was a prime target for Indian uh, mutineer cannons and uh, infantry attacks and cavalry attacks because it was just it's just there it was alone and uh the mutineers knew there were british soldiers stationed outside it so uh, as a result um gurkareed sirmore battalion immediately go to take up uh, defensive positions at the hindu rouse house and mm-hmm. this this is where the you know the shit starts to go down they they have a few small skirmishes up to this point again we're not going to get to you know read this book by the way or this these letters it's, it's amazing and it's quite short mm-hmm. but um at this point at the hindu rouse house it's where things get quite serious so yeah so this is a um a uh, an excerpt from a attack on the hindu rouse house by mutineers and kind of what the what the uh, the Seymour Battalion under Charles Reed does in response, according yes. to his own words. Oh, we should we should add that they're also there with the 60th uh, Royal Americans at this point. 60th Royal what? Americans. Americans. They're not American. It's just just the name. The the regiment like historically, so it was was from the 13 colonies yeah. or something. Okay, that makes and then, sense. And then like they just retained the name, and they they still were. They later like became part of like the Green Jackets and all the like, okay. Howards or whatever. But they they're called technically the sixtieth Royal Americans. They're right. they're not Americans, by the way, for, okay. for reference. But they are just that's just their nickname because they had, they mm-hmm. served in the th- they're loyalists, ex loyalists. I accordingly took up position and waited for the mutineers to advance. On they came and placed a green standard on the hill, within a hundred paces of me. This was more than I could stand. I gave the word forward. Our little fellows were up like a shot and advanced in beautiful order to the top of the hill. 
By way of bringing the enemy on, I sounded the retreat, having previously warned my men what I was going to do. It had the desired effect. On came the mutineers, and we met just as I got over the brow of the hill. I gave them one well-directed volley, and then ordered my guns to open. This sent them to the right about. About fifty were killed, and a great number wounded. Had I been in greater force, I, th- I should have succeeded in capturing the enemy's guns. So here they're basically doing a feint, like pretending to retreat, and then blasting the ever-loving bejesus out of the, uh, yeah, the, <laughs> the mutineers when they're coming, and then taking the ground that the mutineers yeah. flee. And again, these... A lot of back-and-forth kind of fighting in these right, sort the of urban areas. Uh, understand all these bugle calls, because they were all British trained, so they, they, yeah. they heard the retreat, and it's like, oh, we... We, we won. We didn't even fire a shot. We won. Let's just charge. Let's bum rush. And, yeah. Um, they take a volley hard, and and, yeah. uh, and the Gurkhas uh, go to town, right? Mm-hmm. So that was that was a, like, Gurkha, so Surmor Battalion only attack. By the way, the Surmors are now known as, though well, they later became the, uh, the sixth uh, King Edward's own Gurkhas, which have all kind of been amalgamated now into the Royal Gurkha Rifles. So they still are, they still perpetuate these traditions. Um, and with the, with the Royal Americans there, the other unit, there, there are a few other like small groups of Indian soldiers from different units that had remained loyal, but mm-hmm. largely they were there beside the Royal Americans, which was a regular British army regiment uh, that had been stationed there. And the, the, the Royal Americans were all green and the Surmore guys were all green and kind of generally they, they got along pretty well. Uh, they, to, to this day, like all those, like just, just that anyways, I'm, I'm getting ahead of myself. We'll, we'll discuss it in a sec. They're fighting together. They're fighting together. Uh, they, um, the fighting for the Hindu rouse house is pretty intense. Like you said, there's a lot of back and forth, um, and it, it's here that the Surmore Battalion under Gurkha Reed um, established one of the long-standing traditions that continues to exist in the uh, Royal Gurkha Rifles today. So I mentioned the Royal Americans, um, and, the, and the reason, I know that confused the heck out of you for, for a moment, but <laughs> the, the 60th Royal Americans uh, wore green with um, red, like red, like not red facing, I think it was red facings. No, it was a red stripe on their pants. Uh, the Surmore Battalion was an East India Company regiment, so it was raised kind of ad hoc with whatever uniforms they had. It just so happened they, were, they wore green uniforms um, and had East India Company insignia and stuff, but it wasn't. they weren't like very defined as far as the regimental identity goes, whereas the Royal Americans had that history as a 60th. Um, I think they were even there, like the Battle of the Plains of Abraham, American Revolution, and obviously mm-hmm. um, throughout the Napoleonic War, serving in the Peninsula War as as a 60th, right? Because it was like the 95th and the 60th were the only two real units in green. Yeah. So the the 60th had a lot of regimental history, um, and they just happened to kind of look like these, as far as the uniform goes, look like the Surmore um, Battalion. Mm-hmm. After all this is said and done, the Surmores actually adopt like a lot of the uniform conventions of the 60th just because they were so closely linked. Uh, and on top of that, um, rifle regiments don't carry flags. Uh, they, they still don't. The, the rifles in the UK today still do not carry flags. And the Queen's own rifles 
they do not carry colors and because they they don't need colors they have the bugle to basically set them straight and give them orders the Surmor battalion again because they they were just starting to craft this this unique rifles identity as a light infantry unit uh, they they didn't they didn't have the same mindset they still carried a cult like a color meaning like a flag or a banner with your regimental battle honors and stuff on them and a union jack and some sort of insignia they still had a they still had a flag regimental colors are generally very important for regiments right because it's again it's got their battle honors it's got their insignia on it it, it rep it's the pride of the unit it's you know it's a flag it's a big colorful thing that they carry in the battle when a man carrying it a color sergeant or whatever gets killed or wounded in combat he drops a flag it's it's the prerogative of the nearest soldier to pick up that flag it's just the case in linear warfare in those days you have to carry that flag that again unless you're a rifle unit where you've got the bugle to tell you what to do the flag tells you where to go you follow the you follow the colors right um not only do you not let the if you let it get captured by the enemy, it's an absolute disgrace. So you you like you protect that thing no matter what, right? Even if it's at the cost of, you know, your own life, your entire regiment, like you protect the colors. Unfortunately for the Sumer Battalion, um, their colors get not captured but completely destroyed, which is not good. But actually, uh, is one of the kind of foundation foundational things for what's become a very important Gurkha custom but uh, we'll read like regimental color getting destroyed a 32 pounder round shot came smashing into the portico of the house which the officers occupy killing ensign Wheatley 54th who is doing duty with my regiment a Havildeer and four of my men besides two carabiner orderlies and a driver and wounding lieutenant Tullock and three of my Gurkhas, one of whom, Tika Ram, died that evening. This little fellow was one of the best shots in the regiment. He had killed 22 tigers in the dune. He was asleep, poor fellow, when he was wounded. Nine killed and four wounded by one round shot, and regimental color cut in two. So as you can see, it's very much an after-action report, but just yeah. a cannonball just flies into one of the rooms and yeah. smashes this thing in two and kills a fair number of people so, as well. It's again. It is a sacred representation of the regiment. It's just been like destroyed. It's like snapped in half. <laughs> the flag's probably uh, in the ether. It's disintegrated. Mm-hmm. So for the rest of the battle, uh, from here on out, um, they they don't have a color. They have to rely on the bugles and stuff. Now, I- interestingly, after after this whole um, campaign, we're kind of jumping around here, but like much much later in 1863. Long after uh, the war. Long after the war. Uh, Queen Victoria, uh, via Lord Strathnair, the commander-in-chief of India, um, passes on to the regiment a six-foot-tall bronze truncheon inscribed with uh, silver rings with the words Main Picket, Hindu Rouse House, Delhi, 1857, and the designation Surmor Rifles, after, again, they had served with the Royal Americans, so they earned actually a rifles designation and just like a rifles unit they no longer carried a color they carried what uh, this thing called a truncheon which is basically a giant stick yeah. with uh, a lot of silver inlay and stuff and 
it's like a club almost, right? It's just, it's just, it's, it's staff. Feet, I yeah. guess is the best way to describe it. It's six feet tall, and unlike a color, you can actually, it's, it's actually um, detachable, so you can unscrew it technically. And the theory was you could carry it in a knapsack and carry it into battle. Mm-hmm. And it was an, out of respect for the Gurkhas and how aggressive they were. They're so aggressive that <laughs> the, their colors were cut in two. Um, which doesn't happen a lot through mili- like military history in the you know the era of the musket. Um, generally, colors are preserved and saved or captured. Uh, it's kind of the weird instance in many respects that it's kind of weird in many respects that they actually had theirs destroyed entirely. Right? It's it's actually kind of a fluke to to some extent. So. Um, out of recognition of how aggressive they were as, as fighting men, uh, they were given one that would be much harder to lose because you could actually detach and put in a backpack. Uh, so, very interesting. The Royal Gurkha Rifles to this day still carry the Queen's Truncheon, and that Queen being Queen Victoria. And this was also partly de- this designed by Colonel Charles Reed. Yes. Yes. And again, that, that main picket Hindu Rouse House, Delhi, 1857 inscription refers specifically to these this Rourke's Drifteer uh, defense of the house. And they, they were getting attacked more or less every day. Um, the urban fighting was, was intense, so they're, at different times they'd be defending the Hindu Rouse house. Other times, as you read in that other excerpt with the, the green flag yeah. that pissed off Charles Reed's for the order to general charge... <laughs> Uh, like in that case, they're they're counterattacking, so it's just like yeah, attack, leading almost sorties against the, exactly yeah, uh, and then they would go back to the Hindus' rouse house and just get shelled, mm-hmm. right? Um, this this wasn't the typical colonial war that the British were used to. Um, it, this was this was very much higher intensity, you know, much higher intensity, very conventional. They were dealing with artillery, they were dealing with regular British trained regiments. As well as just crazy, angry people. Angry yeah, as well mobs. as mobs and militia, which they were yeah. used to in colonial warfare. Yes, but yeah. so they, they were getting a bit of everything. And um, generally, uh, they it was just a lot of, like, pray and hold on, right? And mm-hmm. that's... So, again, you we highly recommend you actually read this one, because it is... it uh, is. I mean, we recommend you read all the books we cover, but this one yeah. is really short, and that's why we haven't read too much into it. We will give you another excerpt in the book just to, again, highlight the intensity of the Siege of Delhi. We had another grand scrimmage yesterday. The old story, an attack on my position. The enemy were about 8,000 strong and fought desperately. The action commenced about half past 7 o'clock in the morning and was not over till 4 p.m. Hard rain the whole time. About 3 p.m. I wrote to Chamberlain and begged to be allowed to act on the offensive, that we had been the whole day under a very heavy fire of round shot, shell, and musketry, and that I did not think I should lose more men by doing a little business on the offensive. Anyhow, I thought I should get rid of the scoundrels for the day. He agreed, and wrote saying he would himself try and turn their left flank, if I would turn their right and drive them back into the city. I sent instructions for the latter movement to the officer commanding the Sammy House picket. Away I went with five companies of my own regiment, two companies 60th Rifles under Sir E. Campbell, and 180 of the guides under Shabar, in all about 750 men. 
We drove the enemy before us through the jungle and down the Grand Trunk Road, where they were posted in thousands. About 400 yards from the city wall I halted, as I found I was getting my men under grape from the heavy guns in the Mori and Burn bastions, as also from eight small guns which the mutineers had brought out, two of which were placed near the canal bridge. I was anxiously looking out for Chamberlain on my right. Presently he rode up himself, when I begged of him to send me guns. He rode off, and in about five minutes up came my old friend Major Scott with four nine-pounders. We were then able to return the fire of the enemy's light guns, which had annoyed us a good deal. After firing about half a dozen rounds from each gun, I gave the order for another advance. The enemy evidently thought I was about to enter the city, for they not only withdrew their guns, but the whole of their infantry. And after entering by the Ajumir Gate, they manned the walls and commenced firing at me from the loopholes. At this time I was within 250 yards of the walls, but had got my men under good cover. I had fairly driven the enemy inside their walls, and as nothing more could be done with my handful of men, we withdrew. First of all, I should say, sorry, I'm not a... I don't speak any Indian language, so I'm probably butchering the pronunciation of some of the Indian names. But we try. But we try. But yeah, but this is basically, like, all day he is under heavy siege, and then he decides to just lead this death or glory charge that ends up pushing the enemy back several city blocks... And then they start shelling them again, but this time it's the British shelling the mutineers. Then they attack again, and then finally they reach this like impregnable rebel defense, which they can't break through, so they retreat for the day. And I mean, this is kind of like every other day they are doing these yep. kind of pitched battles in the city. Yep, they're it's basically a constant slog. Yeah. First they're defending the Hindu roundhouse, and then they start pushing into the city, and they just keep slogging away. And then sometimes they have to go back to the Hindu Rouse house to defend, and it's yeah. it just slog all the way till the, um, kind of this. I, I think that at this point, what you just read was uh, Ghaziabad, which is yeah, just outside of Delhi at this point. Yes, where they're, where they're fighting through, mm-hmm. um, because obviously it's not just the city of Delhi. There's there's rebels everywhere. Right? Yeah, there's, there's mutineers everywhere, and they're they're engaging them mm-hmm. all over the place. Right, Hindu Rouse house becomes a kind of Alamo position. Yeah. But they're engaging them everywhere. So, uh, Gaziabad's where they eventually end up. After a year and a half of fighting, this war does come to a conclusion, and the the Gurkha legend in, in many ways is cemented because of just how, I guess, effectively they fought throughout this entire campaign um, from their starting point at Deradun all the way to Gaziabad, just uh, outside of Delhi, fighting all the way there, fighting all the way through Delhi, weeks of really, 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 like, horrific fighting, artillery barrages, attacks, counterattacks, defensives, warts drift with cannons. Yeah. <laughs> um, a year and a half later, the 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 Surmer Battalion is reduced to very few men, approximately 80% casualty rate. Um, it's nice that... Despite the fact that there was no obligation to Dirk, uh, sorry, Charles Reed does mention the names of a few of his Gurkha NCOs and soldiers who were killed in action. Uh, mm-hmm. That the records like that are incredibly hard to find because they didn't. Unfortunately, they weren't Europeans. So just even if you were European, if you're a private soldier, there just wasn't a lot of information about you. Yeah. Um, so 
like that guy he mentioned in the other excerpt there that shot 22 lions. It's unfortunately tigers. Yeah. Sorry, tigers. Tigers. Pardon yeah. me. Mm-hmm. We are in India after all. Tigers. Yes. Uh, so, yeah, these are interesting dudes. Um, they're pretty good shots, obviously. And yep. They're tough men, but they by the end they had taken a pretty uh, horrendous casualty rate. There's, I guess, as far as military history goes, a pretty famous picture of what's left of the battalion. Uh, and it, I don't know if it was every single man in the battalion, and I don't know if um, General Sir Charles Reed is in the photo itself, but I've shown you this photo, and it's what remains of the battalion in front of the Hindu's Rouse house, which used to be this beautiful white building that's been completely... Yeah, it, it looks like Swiss cheese Yeah, now. it's like Swiss cheese. <laughs> By the end of it. Yeah, lots of, lots of cannon uh, shot had yeah. torn through the building. Um, and there's like sandbags and stuff and they had like all these defensives that they had built up around it so it, it doesn't look very palatial anymore and it's it looks almost like 20-30 guys left over that had been that were that are still standing out of 490 yes um, and obviously a lot of Gurkha wounded so it's not like they had all been killed but it was a, it was a pretty gnarly casualty rate mm-hmm. uh and, not, and just to emphasize the intensity of the fighting, the regimental color was cut in half. Yep. Um, that being said, the Gurkhas were very motivated through the entire time. They Every time Charles Reed gave an order, they followed it without question and always went above and beyond. Uh, and uh, they, they had absolutely no issue with killing the enemy, at, at, regardless of the context. And... There is a pretty famous story that actually comes from this, and it's in the whole Gurkha mythos now, and it's still recited. No one ever like brings up the source of where this comes from, but it is actually from from Charles Reed talking about this, where basically there's um, two men of the 60th rifles, Royal Americans, eating lunch with the Gurkha. In the lull in the fighting, they're eating some food, uh, and they're in the ruins somewhere in Delhi, and all of a sudden, a mutineer peeks his head out, right? Because he survived the shelling and the fighting, and this guy's confused and probably shell-shocked, and he sticks his head out of a window looking around. And right below the window on the outside of the building, there's the two guys of the 60th and the Gurkha. And they're all eating their lunch. They all look up. They see this head. It's not a friendly head. <laughs> so without hesitation, the Gurkha pulls out his kukri, his big Nepalese knife, dagger, Sword. It's like a short sword, basically. It's pretty yeah, big. it's machete sized yeah. in many ways. He pulls out his kukri, chops the guy's head off immediately with one like one quick swing, yeah. and goes right back to eating his lunch with a head rolling around. And yeah. that, that comes from uh, Gurgarit telling that story. Yeah, they were tough. As I said, I've actually been in Nepal. I've I've met Gurkhas. I've never seen their combat prowess, yeah. but they are they're tough guys. They're very nonchalant about death. They are they yeah, very much do not so. fear their own. Um, you know, and the, still their motto to this day: it's better to die than to be a coward. Yes, right? it's the whole mindset of those regiments that still exist today in the British and Indian Army is like we do not fear death, and we do not care, we do not fear dishing it out either. Yeah, <laughs> right. We don't. Mm-hmm. We don't. Uh, you know, we're very nonchalant and very fatalistic about it. So mm-hmm. all that whole bravado and mindset um, comes, like, stems directly from a lot of events that happen around the Hindu Rouse House and the Siege of Delhi and the Queen's Truncheon and what it represents. By the way, 
I should mention you can you can actually unscrew it in, into five different parts. Yeah. So you can carry it like different guys can carry different components of it, mm-hmm. so you'll never lose it. And, uh, yeah. You can just keep attacking. Right? Yeah. You know, collar flag is so cumbersome, right? So, yeah. Yeah, they're all about attacking. Eventually, the British win this conflict, um, and uh, they punish the mutineers pretty, pretty, uh, pretty yeah. harshly. So yeah, the the British, both the British public and military, were absolutely outraged by the the massacres that had happened to British civilians. Yes. Um, so what they and this is even mentioned in the book. There's a couple times where Charles Reed, uh, I won't read the expert, but he orders the hanging of captured mutineers. Yes. There was very little quarter shown on either side of this war. Um, and what the British actually do quite infamously after the war is they revive a, a Mughal punishment that was specifically used against rebels uh, during the 17th and 18th centuries called being blown from a cannon, which uh, probably conjures up images of the circus, but what actually means is your, your chest slash torso is yeah. tied to the front of a cannon, they fire the cannon, and you the middle of you turns into pink mist. Um, yeah, you disintegrate. Yes, uh, it, it was used occasion a few times by the British sort of prior to this, very rarely, but it was used a lot in the aftermath of the mutiny, during and, and in, in the aftermath of the mutiny, because it was seen as a particularly shameful punishment to use against mutineers, so the British revived it uh, for that practice. I don't think it was used any time after the mutiny, might have been, but it was seen as the punishment for traitors. Yeah. And again, there was no mercy would, was going to be shown to those who had killed British civilians. Uh, again, this is just like we mentioned with the um, Gods podcast. Yeah. I think probably, have we done, and Rifleman Harris yes. as well. Uh, you know, we're, this is pre-Geneva Convention, so. Very pre-Geneva Convention. Uh, we, it's just, it's important to not, and this is the issue, I guess, with a lot of modern history, is you look at it and you're like, oh, that's unquestionably horrific and completely inexcusable um it was a different planet as far as we should be concerned yes like it, it was yeah no the, the mindset the the people the ex, the social acceptability of things like this uh was very different mm-hmm. and i i think even like like that story which is quite famous of the guy getting his head chopped off right it's yeah. pretty pretty gruesome in its own way because the guy was unarmed he was uh, yeah no he was literally just shocked schmuck trying to survive and make it home to his family and his head's chopped off and the guy nonchalantly goes back to eating lunch it's very um Mm -hmm. you know it's it's a different world and we you know we have to acknowledge that it's not like they're they were immoral for some of these practices and to be fair to, to to Charles Reed, um, when he does hang mutineers, he only, he specifically tries to, uh, and this is largely on the way to Delhi. Right? Yeah. We, again, we won't go into all the excerpts. Read the book, but it's largely dudes that had committed the the most egregious crimes and were the ringleaders in committing those egregious crimes. Right. It's not just random Joe Blow that he comes across who. Is like yeah. down with the British, right? It's, yes. it's it's bad, bad, bad cookies. Yeah. Uh, what was it? Uh, bad dudes like corn pop, right? Yeah. <laughs> As a certain president would say, so it's um, it's not like he's indiscriminately killing everybody he runs into. Now that yeah. being said, I 
There are in, there were recorded instances of the British doing that, like indiscriminately, like you're a mutineer, you're a mutineer, you're a mutineer, yeah. blown from a cannon, right? That was happening, mm-hmm. um, despite how bloody the Gurkhas were and uh, Char- Charles Reed himself and how many dudes they killed. Uh, they were they were pretty tame. Yeah, all they, things considered. Yeah, they were not as gung trigger happy as some people. Yes. Yes. Uh, in the aftermath of the mutiny, there were serious changes to British Indian policy. The Crown really took over the British East yeah. India Company, kind of stopped. Yeah, the East <laughs> India Company, yeah. It, it, I guess it still is around today. Yes. But it's just... It, but it's it a lost, shell. Yeah, it's yeah. a shell, and it's lost a lot of its power. Yeah, it, it the, the British viewed, in many ways, one of the major reasons for this mutiny, rightly or wrongly, was the weakness of the... Uh, the company, so yeah, see, yeah. they decided to take it over as a crown colony, pretty much. Serious reforms were made um, politically within India, and uh, obviously all of the loyal regiments were kind of given like prominent status, mm-hmm. right? Um, a lot of the loyal regiments that remain loyal to the British are basically the predecessor units to a lot of modern Indian Army regiments, mm-hmm. including in their Brigade of Guards, their parachute units, a lot of their light infantry units. They derive from units that remain loyal to the British. Yeah. And um, obviously, the British themselves, with their own home European regiments and, and the way that they ran the Army, and the, even, like, I guess to some extent, the Navy, um, and... The idea of like flogging soldiers and stuff like that, the old Napoleonic mindset uh, started to disappear very rapidly. Um, and, then, and then by kind of the 1860s, like there are very specific instructions for everybody to just rip paper cartridges. Yeah. European Indian didn't, or West Indies soldiers, yeah. uh, just rip your cartridges, guys. And, um, a lot of a uh, lot of reform happened. Yeah. Well, that's a story for another day. Well, whatever they did, it obviously worked because there was never another massive scale revolt in India again, yes. uh, right up until independence. There was unrest, and there yeah. were even some Indians who fought on the Japanese side during World War Two, but there was never this scale of uprising against the British again. Yes. So towards the end of um, Sir. General Sir Charles Gurkha Reed, uh, who later becomes a general after after all this and passes away in 1901, but towards the end of his his letters and extracts here, um, he uh, he dishes out some praise to his his brother Gurkhas and um, I think uh, sums it up pretty nicely. I will not attempt to describe my feelings as I strolled over my old position on the ridge. When I looked over at the ground round about Hindu Rao's house, plowed up with shod and shell, the rocks split and covered with bullet marks, trees cut in two and branches torn, and the old house itself riddled through and through with shod and shell, fragments of which still lay upon the ground, although cartloads have been removed, it appeared, I may say, a miracle that I stood there gazing upon the scene. When I looked at particular places in the Subzimundi, where I had seen my troops on the 23rd of June driving the enemy before them and again retreating under a burning sun, a deadly fire of artillery and musketry, and a vastly superior force. I exclaimed, Can it be 
Is it possible? Am I really a living being after all I have gone through? So his last sort of thoughts are, did we just make it through that? Cause, which I think should give you some uh, sense of the intensity of this battle and this campaign. So there you go, guys. Extracts from Letters and Notes written during the Siege of Delhi in 1857 by General Sir Charles Reed. Uh, what was the post, post-nominal we should mention? GCB, so Grand Commander of the Order of Bath. Mm-hmm. That's This book is actually uh, available on Amazon very easily. Um, it's fairly cheap, I think. Yes, fairly cheap. This book was published by the, at least this version of it was published by the Naval and Military Press, uh, who have very good books. I think that's actually where our Rifleman Harris podcast book actually came from, The Recollections of Rifleman Harris. Uh very interesting, like eclectic topics, with especially related to British military history and primary source accounts like this one. Uh, they're getting harder to find sometimes nowadays with with the way that everybody relies on like Wikipedia and stuff, which have a lot of things wrong, <laughs> yeah. just, are just at least framed incorrectly. So uh, yeah, good to good to get the primary source to really understand stuff, and this is this is one of those sources. A little bit different than what we typically do where we really focus on like quotes and stuff. There's just so much context that needs to be provided yeah. to Indian Mutiny. We, we've really only scratched the surface, but hopefully we've given you a little bit of a picture of the mutiny itself and uh, the, the origins in many ways of the Gurkhas. Of course, they existed before this, but this is really... Yeah. The Gurkhali army is yeah. their uh, original... Point, which was the Nepalese fighting forces. But th- this is where the legend really starts. This is where the legend of the Gurkhas, especially yeah. tied to the British, yes. uh, as regiments that are will always be praised as some of the highest ones in the British Army for their bravery and crucially for their loyalty too. Yes, and we'll uh, we'll do more Gurkha stuff down the road. There's there's a few things planned. We have Absolutely. a few a few other ones. Thank you again for listening to the Men Among Men Stories podcast. Um, just. Uh, Special thanks as well to our Buyers Club members who uh, were the first to get in on the Rhodesian Army Lion Horn Mugs, which are still available right now in the Men Among Men Stories podcast. Yep. Uh, as, as many of you know, I am personally, I've been super busy uh, with dealing with the Texas move, operational move with on the Fire Force Venture side of things. So I uh, do appreciate everybody's support on that front uh, from the bottom of my heart. Still still dealing with it at the time of recording this. Uh, and um, it's coming along smoothly, but uh, figured we'd still give you a podcast despite um, being busy. Well, Bindu's actually been helping out a little bit as well. So we've both been very busy, yeah. but uh, hopefully you enjoyed this one. Uh, hopefully you do check out our web store, com. Grab a horn mug. We're both drinking out of ours right now. We're drinking coffee out of them. Are you drinking coffee? Or are you I'm drinking, drinking water. You drinking water out of a horn mug, not even a beer? No. Anyways, <laughs> disgraceful and uh, shameful. Shameful, shameful to spread. <laughs> so, if you want to uh, drink out of these cool water buffalo horn mugs, um, check it out. Minimummenstories.com. You might actually be listening on there. We appreciate you if you are considering yep. uh, consider supporting us. Uh, with a one-time financial donation. Or, or check out our subscribe star. Uh, if you're listening on Spotify or iTunes, Google Google Podcasts, podcasts all of those. 
all those platforms. I uh, appreciate you as well. But do check out the website. Lots of uh, interesting stuff there and uh, more stuff to follow. Maybe a few written articles and other fun mm-hmm. things down the road. Videos, interactive videos. All kind of a work in progress right now. But they are going to happen. Um, if not this year, like definitely next year. There's going to be stuff happening. Uh, what else? Who else do we have to shout out? Start with the K. Okay, our lovely partners at Commando Blog, who you may be uh, listening to this podcast on their website. Commando Blog is a great place for not just our podcast, I think they have a couple others on their site, and they definitely have tons of fantastic articles about guns, militaria, outdoor lifestyles, and related topics. A little bit of military history, which uh, hopefully we're filling the gap for. Yep. Uh, and of course, Commando Heavy Industries, which was recently established uh, in North Richlands Hill, Dallas, Texas, uh, or sorry, Fort I guess Fort Worth, Texas. Please, um, please check them out. CommandoHeavyIndustries.com. Uh, Commando with a K. Fire Force Ventures, my company, is partnered up with them. And of course, uh, well, we might not be around for a heck of a lot longer. <laughs> At least uh, on the Canadian side, but uh, FireForceVentures.com still has a little bit of military surplus left. At the time of recording this, we are still at uh, 25% off everything in stock with the code DYNAMO as part of our Op Dynamo event moving to Texas. Uh, anything else you want to plug? No, that's. I think that is. I think oh, we and, nailed it. And, and the Gurkhas. The Gurkhas. What about the Gurkhas? What about the Gurkhas? Well, you're the only one that's been in Nepal. Yeah, no, go to Nepal. Nepal's cool. They, there you go. They, can des- they deserve your we'll, tourist we'll, money. We'll, if you have a, if you have a, we're plugging the nation of Nepal. There you go. If you have, um, you know, if, if you're wondering where to uh, spend your next vacation, Nepal is a pretty safe and pretty cool country. So that was a very, that was a very smooth transition. See, I was yeah. trying to walk you into that because, you know, Nepal's a cool place. Nepal so is a cool place, there. yes. Yeah, go to Nepal. Yeah, no, uh, yeah, see they, some real Gurkhas. Yes, yeah, the real Gurkhas. You, you'll be very safe because that's who the police recruits from. <laughs> yeah, check out Nepal. Cool country. Um, thank you again to all of our listeners, especially those in the Byers Club, military, law enforcement, first responder, bush firefighters, EMTs, paramedics, uh, dispatchers, all you guys. Uh, we, we love you. You... Do what you do so that we can do what we do. We sincerely appreciate you guys. Thank you again t- for listening to the Men Among Men's Stories podcast. Bindu. So pull up, have a chibouli, and have a great day, guys. <laughs>